my name's Stuart Lee. I'm a member of the English faculty where I teach Old English literature mainly. Um, I've also taught literature of the First World War. And along with my colleague, uh, Elizabeth, um, we co-wrote The Keys of Middle-Earth, discovering medieval literature through the fiction of J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Elizabeth Salopova. Uh, I'm also a member of the English faculty. Uh, I teach medieval literature and the history of the English language, and I'm very interested in Tolkien's fiction. I think we open our book by saying that um, you could consider Tolkien under a variety of roles. He was a soldier, of course, um, in the First World War. Um, he worked on dictionaries, the Oxford English Dictionary, um, so a lexicographer. Uh, he was an academic, and what everyone knows him for, he, he wrote fiction, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Silmarillion, and so on. Um, but what people don't know is really his academic background. So. He was educated at King Edward's school up in Birmingham, and he showed uh, a lot of interest in early languages there. He looked at Gothic, I think, quite early on, um, which, is, which is extraordinary for a schoolboy. Um, and then he came to Oxford, uh, Exeter College, where he studied uh, English language and literature, um, and um, again specialised particularly in medieval English and in Germanic languages, what we call um, the language group, which includes Old English, Old Norse, um, things like that. And he was very interested in the uh, literature that accompanied that, poems like Beowulf, the sagas in the Old Norse mythology and so on. Um, he probably would have immediately gone straight into an academic career, but he then enlisted um, in the Lancashire Fusiliers and fought on the Somme in the First World War. Uh, thankfully, he survived. When he came back, he got a job at the Oxford English Dictionary. But then he moved up to Leeds, where he began to lecture in uh, early medieval literature. So that's Old English, the period up to around the Norman Conquest, and then Middle English, which normally people associate with Chaucer, um, which he was very keen on as well, and Old Norse to a certain degree. And then he came to Oxford um, and was here at Pembroke College, I believe, and then Merton College. And he pretty much stayed in Oxford for the rest of his life. Uh, he was an excellent linguist, and I think um, somewhere in his letters he says about himself that he thinks about himself, first of all, as a scientific linguist. He had excellent background in classical languages as well, in Latin and Greek. I think, I mean, there's a lot of stories from when he was a child about how he became interested in languages. There's the old one about him seeing um, language written on their railway carriages or trucks going to Wales, and he'd seen the Welsh language and, and was became fascinated by that. I think there's also, when he was growing up, he read fairy stories as we recall them now. Now that's a dangerous term to use because he writes a, a very interesting analysis of fairy stories. Um, and he became interested in stories about dragons and, and the old myths. So that probably led him on this sort of combined course of getting interested in literature and language. Um, what really drives him, apart from just a general interest in that subject, is that he started to read the poetry and the, and the prose from all these various um, elderly, ancient Germanic cultures, and he began to come across references to things which weren't quite explained. They were just alluded to. And to a certain degree, what he's trying to do in his fiction is provide a background to that, provide an explanation for that. Um, so at a sort of general level, a lot of these tales from that period contain references to elves, to dwarves and so on. Obviously when he writes his fiction, 
he gives you stories about these races. He tells you where they came from, how they were created, and so on. Um, sometimes they just refer almost on a, as an aside to something. So the old English word for giant, or one of the words, is ent, um, which he then puzzles about. And of course, he creates this race of um, ents, the tree men who um, appear in Lord of the Rings and save the day to a certain degree. Um, so he's beginning to sort of form a mythology based around sort of common um, stories, um, races, etc., that appear in these collection of Germanic myths. And he's trying to form a cohesive whole. Um, he did go down the route, but quickly backed away of, of almost saying, of attaching sort of his mythology, Middle Earth, to a particular period of time in Europe's history, going way back. Um, but what he was just trying to, I think what he came to the conclusion was he was just trying to provide an answer to some of the questions you, you get. It is um, quite amazing how early this interest in Germanic literature and languages uh, became obvious and um, because his uh, academic interests were somewhat unconventional. His education was entirely classical, but actually it didn't influence himself, uh, him in uh, the same profound way as medieval literature. And uh, this un rather unconventional um, academic interest became obvious already uh, when he was at school. I mean, one of the sparks that's often mentioned is, um, is Christ too, isn't it, by Kunewulf? Um, there's a mention in there, there's a line in Old English, and it mentions this word Eärendil, and no one really knows what it is, but it's probably a star of some description. So then Tolkien, quite early on, I think in around 1914, he writes a poem about the voyage of Eärendil, and this all becomes a, a, a very developed myth in the Silmarillion about this person who is sent um, across to the gods to try and um, petition them for help, and but because he actually meets the gods, he's turned into this star, the Eärendil star, who's referenced in Lord of the Rings and so on. So right early on, just because he found a word he'd never heard of, he starts to sort of form a story around it, and that story gradually becomes knitted into the myth. I think that's that's one of the first references I, I can place together, but there are other people who've done more analysis on that. He was very sensitive to languages and believed that languages can be beautiful in their own right. And this is something that modern linguists would disagree with, that you can apply aesthetic judgments to language, but he strongly believed in this. Mm. And that became a bit of a, a bugbear um, in the English faculty in the, in the 20s and 30s. Um, Tolkien was a great defender of the fact that the Oxford English faculty was a faculty of language and literature. Um, and he fought quite strongly and, and was successful at the time, along with some of his other colleagues, in making sure the language component of the English degree at Oxford was preserved. Um, some say possibly too much or it was over-exaggerated, um, but he writes quite eloquently and quite forcefully about this in, in university publications. Um, and that resurfaced when I was at Oxford in the 90s when I first joined that row was still going on and Tolkien's views were still being cited, pro and against actually, the, the retention of language studies in, in English. The book which we wrote, The Keys of Middle-earth, it goes through The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings and just takes a selection of episodes that people would be familiar with from the, the books or watching the film and then shows you a parallel with a, with a medieval text. Um, I think at the beginning we say that there's there's a, you can go much higher level because both books are about a quest 
um, Bilbo to go and, you know, help the dwarves get the dragon's gold. Um, and he goes there and he comes back there and back again. And the Lord of the Rings is a sort of reverse quest because they're going to destroy something, usually in a quest you're going to get something. But they go, they're off to destroy the ring and then they come back. So that that's a fairly common idea in, in many... You wrote about that, um, through picking Seguin and the Green Knight and, and other texts like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, this idea is very... Uh... Uh, important in Sergawin and the Green Knight and in Tolkien as well, but um, you can almost um, say that this is that this level is too high because there is a quest is uh, on the whole a very attractive thing for writers and uh, it is found almost anywhere. Mm-hmm. But there are more, much more distinctive um, influences. There are. Um, episodes which have been pointed out by critics in uh, medieval, in Old English literature, in Middle English literature, and Old Norse, in medieval Finnish um, stories which influenced Tolkien. Mm. There are several episodes of Beowulf, in Beowulf, for example, that are often pointed out, including um, including the whole dragon episode in, the Be- in Beowulf, or, for example, uh, Beowulf's arrival to King um, Hrothgar's court. It is again a theme of hero's arrival and uh, the, the first, the time when we first encounter the hero seems to be very important in medieval literature, in epics, and uh, Tolkien was sensitive on, and, at this and used some of the motifs by gradually introducing the hero and just creating this feeling that uh, something very important is happening, that this is the man who is going to um, save the people. Mm. I mean, that scene when Beowulf gets to Hrothgar's court is almost mirrored, isn't it, in mm-hmm. the two towers, I think it is. So I mean, just re- remind me again, in, in the Beowulf scene, when Beowulf arrives and meets the watch guard, what's the process, the steps by which he, he eventually meets Hrothgar? Um, he is introduced gradually, and um, uh, at first he talks with the coast guard, and then he talks with um, Hrothgar's with Hrothgar's retainers, but uh, nothing is accidental there. Uh, He is asked about his ancestry, about his father's name. We are told, for example, that uh, his appearance is... um, there's something outstanding in his appearance that he cannot be um, an ordinary retainer. So everything there is to show to us that he is not an ordinary man, that's... Mm. Uh, he's the hero who will be the protagonist of the story. Mm. And then, if I'm right, when he's get he gets to Ed, um to Herod, does the he's asked to leave his weapon outside, or him and his retainers, and then he comes into this beautiful hall and he meets Hrothgar and Unferth is is in the hall, isn't he? At that time, <laughs> yes, I don't think he's asked to um, leave his weapons. Mm. Um, I think we are told that he and his retainers walk into the hall and then they put their weapons down right. and yeah. sit uh, on the benches. When in the in the scene in Lord of the Rings, when um, Gandalf, Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn arrive at Theoden's hall, and Theoden is is the old English word for lord, um, they're challenged outside the hall. Um, they do leave their weapons. There's a big discussion about Gandalf leaving his staff, but he. He says it's an old man's stick, which of course it isn't. He's a wizard, and then the hall itself is described very much like Edoras, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And then they enter and they meet Theoden, and in Beowulf you have this 
fascinating character called Unferth, and some people say, well, possibly that's a bit like the Wormtongue character, who is a kind of challenging, but they're not similar or exactly similar, but it's, it's, it's an interesting relationship being played with. So that's, in effect, a scene, you know, that Tolkien takes out of Beowulf, uses it, adapts it for his own purposes, and then puts or, or models in um, in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, the, the dragon episode in Beowulf, that's obviously a bit like Smaug's and, and Bilbo's encounter, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And um, the with the dragons episode, it's um, difficult to interpret because this is the place where the um, manuscript is damaged so uh, there are lots of questions about what exactly happens and what um, is being described and portrayed uh, and I think Tolkien was fascinated by this he tries to answer as a writer some of the questions which he couldn't um, answer as a scholar as an academic mm. Yeah, it's that filling the gaps, it's seeing the gaps in the medieval texts almost. And he's, he's, so it's a dual purpose, he's trying to toy with them, work out well, what are these, but also at the same time create a mythology. He picks up some details from Beowulf, such as the path which led to the dragon's lair. The same path appears in um, The Hobbits. Mm. The one which um, I've recently published on is, um, is, a, is an old English poem called The Wanderer, which is a, a very moving poem. It's an, loosely described as an elegy about um, uh, an unnamed person who is probably exiled from society and he is wandering around looking for a lord uh, and so on. And in, in that he has, there's a very famous speech usually called the Ubi Sunt passage where he reflects back and he goes, where is the horse and, and so on. And those lines are paraphrased lifted almost whatever you want to put it um, and put in the Lord of the Rings and it's when Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli are approaching um, the Rohirrim who were basically the Anglo-Saxons um, in, in all but name and Aragorn says oh I know some of their old verse and he recites it now in the book it says he recites it in a language which Legolas and Gimli couldn't quite understand but they they admired the feel is going back to what we were saying earlier and then Aragorn translates it and it, it is um, a paraphrase loose translation of those lines from the Wanderer and that's quite interesting that you know he, he obviously he loved those lines because he uses them in his valedictory address when he's leaving Oxford um, a reflection, you know, about the passing of worldly glory. Um, but then he places them in to a character called Strider, who is, um, for most of the book, wandering around trying to find should he be king or shouldn't he be. So there's, it's all kinds of things playing on there and subtleties going on. I would never say he produces a direct translation of anything. I mean, even those lines from The Wanderer are a bit all over the place. And if he'd, if he'd handed them in as an undergraduate, he'd have failed his translation exam. Um, and if we take that at a starting level and hand over to Elizabeth, uh, I said that um, the Rohirrim are Anglo-Saxons. You know, they their names are Anglo-Saxon, Eomir, Eowyn, Theoden. Um, they're modelled on an Anglo-Saxon society with a lord and a sort of um, a retainers and, you know, this idea of uh, being rewarded for loyalty and serving people to death. And all their, their, their place names are Anglo-Saxon. Um, but the obvious divergence there is, is what the Rohirrim are known for in Lord of the Rings is their cavalry. They fight on horseback, whereas the Anglo-Saxons rode to battle on horse and then got off it. 
Uh, and some people would say that was a rather foolish thing, particularly at Hastings when they faced cavalry. But anyway, so there's an obvious change there. Um, and Tolkien actually at one point says, oh, you know, you're not meant to learn anything about the Anglo-Saxons from the Rohirrim. Um, I think to a certain degree he's being tongue-in-cheek, but he's, that's, that's his academic side coming out and saying, look, I used bits of them, bits I liked, names, you know, structure of society, things I really admired, but for the plot I needed a giant cavalry race that was going to ride in at the Battle of Pelennor Fields and save the day. Um, so they, you know, they come out there. Um, so there's, that, that at a very abstract level he diverges. Yes, and um, he was influenced by um, Germanic myth mythology in all kinds of ways. The idea of the Middle Earth inhabited by different races is both in Tolkien and in Norse uh, myth, and uh, Middle Earth appears in Anglo-Saxon literature as well, but Tolkien's Middle-earth is very different, even though some of the races are the same, the dwarves for example, but Tolkien's dwarves are different from the dwarves portrayed in uh, Old Norse mythology. Um, the dwarves the dwarves um, in detail and in all kinds of ways. The dwarves of Old Norse mythology do not fight, for example, but Tolkien's dwarves are warriors. Mm. And similarly with the elves, um, I mean in Old English we have mentions of elves, um, people's names, um, occasionally in charms and medical charms, but they're never described in any way, like the detail that we have, the light elves, the dark elves, you know, which run through the Silmarillion, through Lord of the Rings and the wood elves. Yes, that... and we, we, we know very little about the original elves and elves of Germanic mythology. Very little survives in both Old Norse and Old English, so it was, it's just another example where Tolkien uh, takes something that um, survives very fragmentary and then develops it into something completely new. Mm. And he, he, he himself changes, doesn't he, with the elves. I mean, in The in the Hobbit, they're a kind of nuisance race to a certain degree, and they're, they're actually a bit malevolent at times, whereas in Lord of the Rings, they're completely on the side of good. And I think in the book, is it Sorofio you... you you talk about with the elves because of you know that's a much, we're moving much more later in the period there into Middle English. Yeah, and and so is closer to Tolkien's portrayal of the dwarf or of the elves because it also combines these ideas of exceptional beauty and extreme danger. Mm. One of the criticisms of of Tolkien, which I think is wrong, but is that he doesn't deal with human emotion. It's just a book about heroes, really good people, killing really bad people. Um, I mean, I think anyone who says that clearly hasn't read the book and doesn't understand it. So the Aragorn-Arwen relationship is an extremely interesting one. It's, I mean, it's unrequited love, which, you know, you don't really get in, certainly in Old English. It's beginning to touch on it in uh, possibly the first short novel, Apollonius of Tyre, but really that's that's later you don't you having said that though there's there's um the wife's lament is the husband's message where there is some sort of relationship breakdown and people are um you know are separated from probably a, a loved one and wolf and the advocate as well but it's not explored in anything like the aragorn arwen relationship um but i think uh i mean my view is he's, he's he looks across the period you know a thousand years of literature if you want to loosely call it and not just English but as we said you know Germanic literature Old Norse um, Finnish and he pulls stories out of all of that 
uh, and forms them. His portrayal of um, heroism is also interesting. Uh, Tom Shippey, for example, argued that Spilbo in The Hobbit is a kind of um, a mediator between modern attitudes and um, heroic attitudes of uh, medieval literature, that um, heroism is no longer fashionable and writers avoid portraying it and uh, readers do not trust heroes anymore. Um, and that Tolkien to some extent shared this attitude or, or at least was aware of this and in this sense Bilbo is a mediator between um, modern attitudes and um, heroism as portrayed in medieval literature. It should be also argued that there is parody of um, heroic attitudes in The Hobbit and it is certainly true, it is there, but um, again, as Stuart said, Tolkien looked across the medieval literature and uh, almost everything that you find in a Tolkien as, um, as a writer, uh, you can say that this has some source in medieval literature, including um, parody of um, heroic behavior. This is found in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, for example, and medieval writers were also aware of the difficulty of reconciling uh, Christian attitudes and the heroic code. So uh, the uh, attitudes to uh, heroism were complex, and this is very obvious in medieval literature as mm -hmm. well, and they're complex in Tolkien. Uh, attitudes to the heroic are not entirely, are not, are not always positive or not only positive in medieval literature. Uh, it was uh, admired, but there are also negative associations, for example, very obvious in uh, legends about cursed gold, where heroism her her is associated with greed. Um, and so, so the attitudes are complex in medieval literature, mm. and we find this complexity in Tolkien as well. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a tendency to oversimplify medieval literature. You, you know, the people who don't know it really, who who should know better, comment on it as that it's very very simplistic and deals on fairly basic level with people going and killing nasty things. I mean, if you look at Beowulf, it's 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 a profile, a psychological profile of a man going over fifty fifty odd years, even longer actually, and he's a very complex character, and, and he's not just a simple hero who is good throughout. I mean, you can argue it either way, but you, at least you discuss it. And Tolkien was aware of that. And I think what Tolkien writes is a modern book, but recognising that many of the, the ways medieval writers did were quite modern as well. So, as, as Elizabeth said, nearly all the characters have a flaw with them. Um, some of them, the interesting thing is that they overcome that flaw, um, or, you know, or they, they fail to, like Boromir or Gollum, um, or well, even Frodo probably fails at the end. Uh, Bilbo carries it through. Thorin Oakenshield in The Hobbit fails, but then realises. So you look at all those characters and they are very complicated, which is exactly what happens in modern modern films about heroes. We don't, we don't like superheroes who just come in and everything's great with them. Even Superman is probably the most bland superhero you'll ever get. Always has a fault. I mean, it's the kryptonite fault. It's the possible, you know, the love with affair with Lois Lane but he does have a weakness and that's what we want we you know the modern superhero films are always about a, a troubled person Batman is troubled he's not just goes in and kills everyone and everyone's happy like in the TV series so Tolkien was a modern writer and I think that's what Shippy says um, and I would agree with it
So do you think that in order to fully appreciate Tolkien's work, you need a sort of um, understanding of the medieval literature that um, he um, based his work on? I think, I think you can certainly get a, a hell of a lot of enjoyment out of them, and many people have. You know, people who watch the films and read the books probably never go into studying medieval literature. That was the purpose of our book, to try and sort of coax them gently towards the original text and then they could see, um, you know, what was going on. You, you don't need to, but Tolkien goes out of his way to try and get you to think a bit like you're reading an academic book. It's full of appendices and there's an introduction, you know, and there's, a, there's an index. So you begin to realise there's something going on here. And I, I think um, the two things I'd say is, one, that if you if you don't go down that route and start to read them, then you just don't understand how, what a fantastic myth maker Tolkien was. Um, and, you know, to, to achieve such an, a, a work um, based on such imagination, creating a world, creating the background, creating histories, which you don't really need to know for the story Lord of the Rings, but they're all there, and genealogies. Um, and then oh, drawing out ideas so that you can link you back to these things which are common in human experience for a thousand, probably longer. I mean, some of the themes in medieval literature go back even further. And the second thing is that, I mean, you know, unfortunately he's passed away. Um, he's not writing any more books. Um, there, is a, there is an industry, <laughs> undoubtedly, of churning out um, books by Tolkien, but... Um, this is another area. If you're interested, if you like what was going on in Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, then start reading things like Beowulf and Sigwain and the Green Knight, and you'll get more of it. Yes, and it doesn't at all detract from Tolkien's originality as a writer. Um, our awareness of the sources which he used, on the contrary, there is exceptional richness there, and um, his response to medieval literature was very interesting. and. Um, there are lots of interesting ideas there. Do you think that um, our knowledge of how much he sort of adapted from earlier texts, um, does that sort of take away from um, when people say, oh, he invented all of these worlds and languages, when really it sort of came from an earlier time and an earlier tradition? I don't think it detracts I mean, my reply, because it's he still is, in, inventing's the wrong word, he's bringing together, he's appropriating material and forming something new, and he uses this, you know, analogy, doesn't he, of the soup and the ingredients of the soup, and, you know, that you should be looking at the, the, the entire work, the soup, the taste of the soup, you shouldn't just be going, oh, there's a bit of salt here, and so on like that, and, and he also said that, you know, sometimes it's conscious, undoubtedly, sometimes it's subconscious, he, again, leaf mould, this idea of things bubbling to the surface and you don't really know where they came from, it might be something he read. But, you know, he it is vast. Lord of the Rings is, I don't know, uh, the chronological period, if you take from, you know, the original party by Bilbo, but it's only, a, a, you know, 20, 30 years or whatever. Um, he was imagining way back, you know, millennia before that, and he writes all of that history. It is just enormous. Um, so I, I personally don't think it detracts at all because what we have from medieval literature is sparse, it's bits and pieces and he's taking all that and everything else and laying, overlaying something else on it and then writing some damn good stories. And I think he, he, what he creates is genuinely new. No one has attempted anything like this before.
no. or since I would say on anything like this scale um, and and it's it's kind of interesting because the way he writes and his theories on how you write successful fantasy stories which clearly he did um, he put he pretty much puts down the lessons this is how to do it and a lot of subsequent writers of fantasy literature have ignored them or didn't know about them and and it's exposed that's why they're quite weak writers um, because they his view is you you build the world and then you write a story on top of it well clearly when you read some of the modern fantasy writers they're just writing a story and then they're just throwing in bits and pieces when they you know, oh that'd be fun to have something in there it makes no sense so you realize you're not really in a real world or you know you don't believe you're in a real world um, he was an excellent linguist and his linguistic research is still entirely relevant and very respected by scholars but he made linguistics part of his creative world he made it he made it part of his fiction and he um, when he writes about languages he he makes it very attractive, um, approachable and attractive. And this is his other achievement. He made um, the study of language and the creation of languages part of his uh, work as a writer. And languages are very important in his fiction. Uh, he says somewhere that, uh, well, this very famous quotation that to me the word comes first and the story follows. Uh, this is uh, similar to the story about Aaron Dill, where he takes an old English word and builds um, a story about it. Um, so he was, as I said, he was very um, sensitive to language and um, as a scholar and, and as a writer. Uh, so for him, individual words have um, um, exceptional significance and this is probably true of um, many great writers. It's part of building the world isn't it I guess it's you know saying well if you've got this many races on this landmass they're going to speak different languages and rather than just say they're going to speak different languages and not he, he, he really builds the language he builds the writers will not do this yeah. <laughs> and he did it at such an amazing uh, to such an amazing extent at such an amazing scale mm. and he, he worries over words doesn't he i mean sometimes he'll put a word in and he'll worry and why did i i mean the, the classic one is the word hobbit he, he struggles for ages about well, why did i put that in how did i you know and people agonize over it but he, he even comes up with a, a pseudo etymology for that word as well uh, he describes the invention of languages as one of his uh, not even hobbies but something that fascinated him as an art mm. and um, he worked on his languages throughout his life uh, earlier versions of his languages are very different from uh, what he uses later so his languages developed and he continued to um, develop them and work on them really throughout mm. throughout his life and I think the, it even goes to the level where even if, you know, a modern fantasy writer invented a language and actually had an idea of the grammar behind that language, I think is very rare. I think they just throw in random words. Not only did he do that, he also developed a history of that language mm -hmm. as because he's aware of the histories of language and the relationships of European language. He was doing that as well. He was going, well, this comes from this root word back to this language. It's phenomenal. 
So as a medieval um, specialist, um, what do you think of um, more modern um, interpretations of uh, medieval stories, like um, obviously Beowulf and um, Gawain still have quite a very strong hold on the popular imagination, but do you think that um, Tolkien is still sort of the pinnacle of uh, interpretation of med these medieval stories? Well, I suppose it's, it's, it's not like we'd like. I mean, what we're saying is Tolkien surveyed everything, you know, took bits out he liked, adapted them, but at the same time was creating something new. Um, the adaptations you see of, I mean, the, the film version, the um, Zemeckis version of Beowulf, is an attempt, um, a rather odd one, to sort of, in, in cinema, portray the story of Beowulf. Um, I think, from my view, it's great that people are still interested in these old stories and they think they have a message. Um, and, you know, the Beowulf story does have a message and it, it's, it's a fantastic tale. Um, the adaptation on film was odd, to say the least. Um, and it wasn't really Beowulf, but <laughs> apart from that, it was good. But then we've recently had the Armitage um, translation of Seguin and the Green Knight, which, you know, again, it just says this is a really good story. You know, there is there is, you can learn from this. It's it's literature for all ages. Um, and that, that was a, obviously a much better, you know, much closer to the text as, as and Seamus Heaney's Beowulf translation again. At least it's trying to follow the story, you know. Um, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm positive about it. I always look at these things freshly and give them their chance. Um, and even in the the animated version of Beowulf, there were some really clever ideas, you know, really good little scenes going on. So you know, I remember the elderly Beowulf peering at the sort of almost like uh, mini theatre production of his fight with Grendel in front of him. I mean, that's a very clever idea. It was well, it was well thought through. My view to this is also positive. I'm glad that writers are interested in medieval literature and um, it is very difficult to do well and I think Tolkien did it well partly because he was a professional and he knew and loved this literature so much but it is uh, difficult to do well but on the other hand it does absolutely no harm to the sources themselves. No. Um, thank you very much uh, Stuart and Elizabeth. Um, you've been very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>